Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. Why should people care about theistic evolution? What is it? Is it a good idea, a bad idea, somewhere in between? How should Christians think about that? Those are the questions that we're going to talk about today with my special guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer, and he directs the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute in Seattle. And Stephen has been featured on television, national programs, radio, the front page of the New York Times twice. He's the author of Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life, and The Case for Intelligent Design and Signature in the Cell, as well as the topic of our discussion today and the editing of this book, Theistic Evolution, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. Dr. Meyer, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So where I want to start, and we'll get into all the fun stuff and the evidence and some of the ideas and everything, but I I just want to hear your story a little bit and introduce our audience to your story about why it is that you care about these questions and maybe how this all began for you as a passion of exploring these kinds of questions. Well, I came to faith in a kind of unusual way. As a young teenager, I had a, a lot of unwelcome questions that started crowding into my mind. And a lot of them had to do, in retrospect, with a kind of a fear of the universe being meaningless. I kept having this question that popped into my mind, what's it going to matter in 100 years? What does anything matter in 100 years? And it, you know, if you reasoned this out, to my young way of thinking, you know, you can work as hard as you want and achieve whatever goals you want to achieve, but at the end of your life, you're going to die. Maybe what you've achieved will be remembered for a while, but probably not. Even if it's remembered for a while, the people doing the remembering will eventually die. And so I had this kind of uh, experience of anxiety about questions of meaning. And when I encountered the Bible, I uh, I started reading it on my own, and I found a lot of the the questions that I later learned were philosophical were actually answered by uh, the Bible and the implicit worldview in the Bible. I had big questions about time as well, and it it seemed very mysterious that I could remember dropping a ball a minute or two ago, and then, well, where did that event go? It was gone, but the event that I was currently experiencing was going to be gone just as fast, and it seemed like there was this flow of sensory experience, but there was nothing binding it all together, and it seemed like there had to be something that didn't change for, for all the things that I was perceiving to be real, and a sense of that kind of, uh, it was just a lot of things just didn't seem to make sense to me as a teenager. And as I read the Bible, it, I found that it answered some of these questions about meaning and purpose and about the nature of time. I learned that, you know, God in the Bible revealed himself as the great I am that was unchanging. And so when I got to college, I ended up taking, I was a double major in two different fields of science, but I took a lot of philosophy classes as well. And I found that the questions I've been asking as a teenager were actually philosophical questions. The existentialist philosophers asked them a lot. I remember coming across a passage in John Paul Sartre who said, without an infinite reference point, nothing finite has any lasting or enduring meaning. And that made perfect sense to me. And Sartre was put it into words that I couldn't as a 14-year-old. But So initially, my Christian conversion was one where I, I didn't feel a great deal of joy or euphoria like a lot of my uh, teenage classmates did who found faith as well, but it was more for the first time in my life I felt normal, and I had 
some a framework for answering basic questions that had been kind of tormenting me. And when I got out of college, I was starting to feel more settled in my faith. As I had thought through a lot of things philosophically, but in my early 20s, uh, a conference came to our city on the um, the big questions of cosmology and uh, the origin of life and the origin and nature of consciousness. And there were Nobel Prize winning scientists and top of the world people in different fields discussing the origin of the, the universe, the origin of life, and the origin and nature of human consciousness. And there were theists and materialists, atheists on basically a two-sided discussion. And I was blown away by the sense I had that the theists actually had the intellectual initiative. The universe apparently had had a beginning. And the the origin of life required explaining the origin of the information stored in DNA, the digital code stored therein, and and on and on it went. And it seemed, in addition to there being a kind of philosophical rationale for belief in God, which I had previously embraced, there was scientific evidence for the reality of certainly some kind of intelligent, designing, purposive being behind the cosmos, but when you took into account the cosmology as well as the biology, it looked like there was a powerful case for theism to be made from the scientific evidence. And it happens that I'm finishing a new book on this right now called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And I've been working on this now for in different ways for, for 35 years, but it was at this conference in Dallas in 1985 when I first started thinking that in addition to there being a kind of philosophical rationale for faith, there was scientific evidence that pointed to God as well. And after the conference, I met some of the scientists who had been presenting the case for intelligent design. I went to grad school in England and initially took a deep dive on the question of the origin of life. My first book, Signature in the Cell, was about that. And that was in that book, I made a case for the intelligent design of the living cell without explaining or trying to account for or identify the designing intelligence responsible. But as I thought more and more about these issues over the years, and especially the, how the cosmology and the physics fit into it, I think it's possible to extend that basic design argument to make a, a, a case for, for God as the designer, and uh, that's what I'm working on now. So uh, this is kind of a sketch from, from 14 to, to where I am now. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful because here at Impact 360, we get to work with students during that age range, really beginning of that 14-year-old all the way up through you know, early 20s and asking and answering the big questions of life. So I think it's fascinating that your journey was, hey, why does anything matter, you know, beyond, you know, next week and ultimate questions? And those are really important because they frame and orient life. So really looking forward. You know, I thought that there was something wrong with me because I was asking these questions. They were tormenting me. I looked around at school. I didn't see anyone else asking these questions. I, I found out later a lot of people do. But my story was that I... I was 14 years old. I had broken my leg in a pretty um, severe skiing accident. I woke up in the hospital in a full leg cast. I was sort of a hyperactive, neurotic, overthinking sort of person anyway. (laughs) And my dad gave me this book about the history of baseball to read in the hospital. And I loved baseball, and I wanted to be a baseball player, and I couldn't think of any more ennobling profession than to be a professional baseball player. But as I read the stories of all the greats of yesteryear, the stories all had the same trajectory. These young guys would, would be full of promise. They'd be identified by a scout. They'd play a year in the minors. They'd make their way to the majors. Then they'd start to, you know, accumulate great statistical accomplishments, win the batting title, get a certain number of home runs. They'd win the World Series, whatever it was. And then eventually 
their career would wane and they would retire and maybe they'd live out their days with enjoying the, their celebrity or maybe they wouldn't, but eventually, like everybody else, they died. And I started thinking, and that's when the thought just kept popping into my mind, well, what's it going to matter in 100 years if these guys who are doing the thing that I most want to do in life and I most admire have the same sense of, okay, you know, so you had a 300 career batting average. Who's going to remember? Who's going to care? And I remember years later going through the Louvre in, um, in Paris, and there were, they had a display of these ancient records of the Greek Olympics from 2,000 years ago, and nobody even knew that, you know, who these athletes were, but they, they had in Greek, you know, the, they had records of their victories and so forth. But I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, this is where we all end up, no matter what profession we do, whether it's professional baseball or, you know, even if you're a doctor saving lives, eventually those people are going to die too. And I thought, well, what's, what's anything going to matter? And that's kind of where my journey started. And in college, I found there was a, a philosophical way of addressing those questions with what are called presuppositional arguments for God's existence. And I found them very persuasive, but maybe perhaps not ultimately so. And it was when I encountered these evidential arguments as well that I thought, wait, God has really revealed himself. He's really made himself known through the things that are made. And so reality isn't ultimately impersonal. It takes a person to value something. It takes a person to confer significance on something. And so if when we die, we rot, as the scientific materialists tell us, then at the end, all you have is particles in motion. You know, there's no personhood left. But if there is an ultimate person who is eternal and, and persists after we die, then there is every possibility of our coming into relationship with him on an eternal basis. And then, then there is the possibility of, of meaning that lasts. The very thing that I think the French atheistic existentialists were, were longing for but couldn't, couldn't find because they had accepted the story of the scientific materialists. No, I, as I hear you talking about that and kind of sharing your story, the, the passage from Ecclesiastes 3 comes to mind where, where God has set eternity in the hearts of man. And so there's this kind of this echo and this longing. And so it's really fun to see how God's used that in your story. And we get to see God begin those conversations and different students at, at this age that we get to work with, which is fun. But, you know, one of the things that we get to do is study and explore the next generation. Over the last couple of years, we've been studying about the big questions of life. What is Gen Z? That's the next generation after millennials. What do they believe about the big questions of life? And we did this national study with the Barna Group on this. And one of the things that we found was interesting. I'll read you this statistic, but it says half of church-going teens say the church seems to reject much of what science tells us. And so there's this kind of tension that, that students feel. Maybe talk about the tension as you see it from your perspective. Obviously, you were trained at Cambridge. You've been studying and thinking about these issues and publishing on them for, for many, many years now. What are the tensions as you see it, especially around this question of evolution? Then we'll jump in maybe to start defining yeah, a few terms. Yeah, what, I mean, that's what a really tensions? big... Yeah, the, we've done some polling as well, and there have been, uh, I think, Pew studies, very similar results. One of the studies, I don't know if it was the one that we commissioned or others, but showed that number one reason for young people walking away from faith is no scientific evidence for God. Number two is theory of evolution. Hmm. And so science is playing a very big role in this secularization of the rising generation. Even kids that have been raised in the church are thinking, you have faith on the one hand, you have facts on the other. And the burden of proof that I'm assuming in this book that I'm writing now, The Return of the God Hypothesis, is that this actual situation is just the opposite. That the facts of science 
are providing support, evidential support, for the key tenets of a theistic worldview, the, the, the worldview that's presupposed in the Judeo-Christian scriptures. And I'm focusing on three big discoveries concerning biological and cosmological origins. The first is that the universe had a beginning. And this is the big discovery that started in observational astronomy in the 1920s when the astronomers realized that the universe is expanding outward from an initial creation event. It was confirmed by deep developments in theoretical physics, including things that have come out of Einstein's theory of general relativity, something called the singularity theorem that Stephen Hawking and George Ellis and Roger Penrose proved in 1968, that if you go back far enough in time, the curvature of space, or space-time as Einstein called it, becomes infinitely tight, corresponding to zero spatial volume, that the universe literally comes into existence. Space and time, as well as matter and energy, come into existence at a finite time in the past, before which there was no matter, space, time, or energy that we could invoke as the cause of the universe. So that's one huge discovery. The universe, the material universe itself, had a beginning. It's exactly what you'd expect on a theistic worldview. It's exactly what's taught in the Bible. And it underwrites the reformulation of an ancient argument for God's existence called the cosmological argument. So that's one big thing. There's no tension there. Actually, there's support between modern science and a biblical or theistic worldview. Secondly, in physics, the great physicists of the 1950s and 60s started discovering that the universe is finely tuned in many different respects to allow for the possibility of life. The fundamental forces of physics, the configuration of matter at the very beginning of the universe, many of the what are called the laws and constants of physics are just right, not too strong, not too weak, not too fast, not too slow, matter arranged just right to allow for the possibility of life. And this fine-tuning, as it's called, has suggested to many physicists the need for a fine-tuner. Fred Hoyle, Sir Fred Hoyle, who discovered some of the most important fine-tuning parameters, was quoted as saying that a common-sense interpretation of the evidence of the fine-tuning from physics suggests that a super-intellect is monkeyed with physics and chemistry to make life possible. And so and I, in my new book, I discuss this at great length, that from the very beginning of the universe, it looked like the universe was a setup job to allow for the possibility of life. Hmm. And then the third thing is the evidence from biology, about which I've written extensively in the past. And there are many evidences of design in biology, but the one I find most compelling at the very foundation of life is the presence of information in a digital form stored largely in the DNA molecule. And that information has been likened to a software code. Our local hero here in, in uh, Redmond, Washington, Bill Gates, says the DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever created. Well, we know from experience that software always comes from a programmer, from an intelligent agent. And we know more generally that information, in whatever form we find it, especially if it's in a digital or alphabetic form, whether it's in a section of written text or a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or even information that might be embedded in a radio signal, whenever we find information and trace it back to its source, we always come to a mind, not a material process. So the discovery of information at the foundation of life points, I think, to a master programmer for life. And when you add all that up, the fine-tuning of the universe, the beginning of the universe, and the evidence for periodic infusions of information into the Earth's biosphere, that suggests to me a transcendent, intelligent, and active creator, which comports very nicely with the, the worldview of the Judeo-Christian scriptures, of the theistic worldview of the Bible. And I call that the return of the God hypothesis. So I don't see a tension between science and faith. I think there have been tensions over 
particular issues, but if you look at the big issues of how the universe got here, how it was set up for life, and where life came from, the evidence is really compelling, and I think it points in a decidedly theistic direction. I completely agree, and I love your summary of that, and looking forward to that next book, which we'll have to have you back on to talk about as well in the future when you finish that up and release it. You know, one of the things that's interesting when, as I was hearing you talk on that is whenever you start the conversation with those bigger questions, that sets the important backdrop for then the particulars around a topic, say, like evolution, which happens after some of these bigger questions about the origin of life or origin of the universe have even gotten started and settled. And so let's zero in a little bit on, because I know you've edited this work called Theistic Evolution, in which you're critiquing with the team this idea of theistic evolution. But some people, they might hear the term evolution, and they're like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And obviously, there's lots of different ways people define that. Can you kind of help us start off by defining our terms around evolution, what it that's is and a what really, it isn't? Yeah, that's a really helpful question and the most important one to start with, because evolution can mean lots of different things. It can mean simply change over time. And, of course, God can cause change to occur, so you could be a theistic evolutionist in that sense without any risk of contradiction or, you know, incoherence. But evolution can also mean the idea of universal common ancestry, that all organisms are related by common descent from a single, uh, simple one-celled organism way back at the very beginning. So that's the second meaning of evolution. And then a third meaning of evolution is that there is an undirected natural process called natural selection acting on random mutations that produces all the change implied by evolution number two. Sometimes Darwinists will represent the idea of universal common ancestry with a great big tree where the branches at the top of the tree represent all the forms of life that exist today, and then the trunk represents the simple one-celled organism from which everything else allegedly evolved and changed and morphed to finally produce all the forms we see today. So that's the second definition of change, is a pattern of change that they see in the, you know, in the, in the historical record. But the, the third meaning of evolution is this idea that there's an undirected process that drives all that change. And that's where things get really sticky if you're a theist, because what then is God doing if the process is completely unguided and undirected? It happens for scientific reasons that I am skeptical about the idea that all organisms are connected by common ancestry. I think you see both in the fossil record and in genomics now profound evidence of discontinuity. But setting that issue aside, this third meaning of evolution is really difficult because if you're going to say that the process of evolution is unguided, then what role, if any, can God have in that? If God is, when most people think of theistic evolution, they think of God guiding the evolutionary process. But if the process is unguided, then God really isn't guiding it. Or another way to think of it is that not even God can guide an unguided process, because as soon as he's guiding it, it's no longer unguided. So mm -hmm. you have either a logical problem or a theological problem with theistic evolution. Either God isn't doing anything, in which case you have something not quite, it's not quite deism, but it's something akin to that, in that God is passive in allowing natural processes to do anything without him in any way directing the process. And that's a form of, theologically speaking, that affirms a form of diminished divine sovereignty. God is not really active as a creator. So that's a theological problem. But if you say God is guiding the process, because the biological process is by definition unguided, then you've got this logical problem of God guiding an unguided process, which makes no sense at all. 
So it's important to define which meaning of evolution we're talking about. The meaning that we critique in the book is evolution number three primarily, although we do have some evidential arguments against evolution number two. We have no problem with the idea that change over time occurs, Mm -hmm. and that life on Earth, for example, now is different than it was a long time ago, as recorded in the fossil record. We see minor microevolutionary change, finch beaks getting bigger and smaller, peppered moth populations becoming more dominantly light and dark at different times. That kind of microevolutionary change is common and observable. No one challenges that. But the major innovations in the history of life are not well explained by Darwinian evolution. And if Darwinian evolution or some process like that were responsible, then it would be hard as a theist to say exactly what God was doing in the process of creation. Yeah, and that, that seems to be a problem, especially when you're trying to harmonize that with some understanding of Genesis where you see God actively creating and then the psalmist describing God's activity and all these yeah, how, kind of things. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, uh, yeah, you know, however you read Genesis, however you interpret the days of Genesis, the sense you get from the text is that God is actively doing things to bring new, new he's bringing new things into existence. He's causing innovation to occur in the history of life. And theistic evolution really denies that God is active in any way. So you have a difficult time reconciling that with a biblical account, certainly. But just basic theism is the worldview that holds that God created things in the beginning, but then he's also active in his creation after the beginning. And theistic evolution denies that there's any place for God to do anything. So what we've been we've been challenging our theistic evolutionist colleagues, many of whom are very sincere Christians, to explain, well, what do they think God is doing? Is God doing anything? When you say that God is using the evolutionary process, is it a guided or an unguided process? And they've been really loath to clarify that issue, because if they say God is guiding the process, that's a form of intelligent design, and they've been very critical of the idea of intelligent design. Right. But if God is not guiding the process, then they have, I think, a theological problem, because most of these folks are either Orthodox Catholics or, or Evangelical Christians, and so they want to be at home in their religious constituencies, but most pastors and priests recognize, well, that's not quite a, a biblical or Orthodox theological view to have God simply watching from the mezzanine while mutation and selection does all the important work. No, that's that's a really important overview and summary of that. You know, it's interesting, you know, let's take someone, say, like world-famous Richard Dawkins, right, author of The God Delusion, Oxford zoologist, and so he would say, and he's about as committed of neo-Darwinist as you could probably find, right? Would he be excited that there's this whole group of people called theistic evolutionists? He's like, oh, this is a great innovation. Like, what, what do you think he would say, or has he said, in terms of, oh, well, there's people actually coming our direction? Or is he kind of saying, why are you even adding that kind of useless name to the top of this perfectly good process? Yeah, it's more the latter. He holds them in contempt. He regards us as a threat a threat to rationality, a threat to science, a threat to all that he holds dear. But the the theistic evolutionists are regarded with contempt because, you know, if it's true that mutation and selection can do all the creative work, why say that God is using the process? God becomes an unparsimonious, unnecessary add-on to an otherwise completely sufficient theory. And and it's important also to realize, and Dawkins is really helpful in this, because whatever his penchant for rhetorical overstatement, (laughs) he's very good at at framing fundamental worldview issues. And in The Blind Watchmaker, his first really popular book, on page one, he said, biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. 
And he acknowledges, as many biologists do, including evolutionary biologists, the great Francis Crick said something very similar when he said that biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they're looking at was not designed, but rather evolved. Living things give the appearance of having been designed for purpose. The Darwinian account of that apparent design is the mutation selection mechanism. The idea is that there's an unguided, undirected process that can mimic the powers of a designing intelligence without itself being designed or guided in any way. And that's core to both classical Darwinism and modern neo-Darwinism. And the reason for that is that neo-Darwinism isn't just explaining where new forms of life came from. It's also explaining where the appearance of design came from. And so if the appearance of design is accounted for by a process which is not itself designed or guided or directed, then you can have design being merely apparent. But if the process is guided in any way, then the appearance is no longer just an appearance. Then it's real. Then you have real intelligent design, and that's exactly what the theistic evolutionists are critical of. They don't want to say that design is real. They don't want to affirm intelligent design. So if you accept the Darwinian account of apparent design as a result of an undirected process that merely mimics the powers of a designing intelligence, then you've got a real problem trying to synthesize any meaningful form of theism with the Darwinian story, because you're essentially saying that God is directing that undirected process, and that's just nonsense. Right. Absolutely. It's Because that's, that's contradictory. And so so it's really important to even frame this discussion. You know, I'm curious, do you see this idea of theistic evolution growing on college campuses, especially Christian college campuses, as they try to engage this faith and science interaction uh, I, with Biologos and different I, things like that? I see theistic evolution as an increasingly moribund position. It's a sterile hybrid, like a mule. It doesn't inspire new people to rally around it because it provides more of a sociological function than a scientific one. The explanation for biological origins, if you accept it, was perfectly, the neo-Darwinism provides a perfectly acceptable explanation for neo-Darwinism. I think it's evidentially false, but if you accept that it's adequate on scientific grounds, then saying that God somehow directed the Darwinian process, the neo-Darwinian process, doesn't add anything at all. And so it really is just a place for Christians to say, well, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can be, I can believe in this undirected materialistic process and still hold on to my faith. But it doesn't really inspire excitement because it's not providing anything new scientifically, and it's mainly just a way of kind of reassuring people that they're not scientific illiterates and they can still believe in God. So I think there's much more excitement around the intelligent design concept. I think the movement, the, the network of scientists, including young scientists that we have worldwide, is growing extremely fast. But I think the theistic evolutionist, the attractiveness of the position is pretty limited. There are a lot of Christian college biology professors who hold it, but that's pretty much the constituency for the idea. It's not very popular in the church at large, and it's certainly not winning over secular scientists to its position because it really has nothing to offer beyond just sort of baptizing what the secular scientists already believe. Right. So if you were going to critique um, and take one or two, maybe three kind of evidential points of issue or tension that you say, hey, look, neo-Darwinian evolution kind of fails to explain what needs to be explained or here's some evidence against it. What are some of the ones and pieces of evidence you would bring to the discussion first? Like, what are those things yeah, that, you highlight that, first? That's really the point we haven't touched on yet, which is really the fundamental reason to reject theistic evolution is that the 
version of evolutionary theory that theistic evolutionists endorse, which is either neo-Darwinism or one of the modern variants of that, is itself or are themselves in serious trouble scientifically. So where the best, a good place to start in understanding that is a conference that was held at the Royal Society in London in November of 2016. It was called New Trends in Evolution. It was an anodyne way of describing the reason for the conference, which was that leading evolutionary biologists called it to discuss the need for a new theory of evolution. Hmm. And they recognized at the conference, most of the scientists there recognized that the textbook version of the theory that we all learn is completely inadequate. The first talk in the conference was by a leading Austrian evolutionary biologist named Gerd Müller, who outlined the explanatory deficits of neo-Darwinism, one of which was the abrupt appearance of major groups of organisms in the fossil record, another of which was the lack of an account for anatomical innovation in the history of life. There isn't an adequate mechanism to explain where all the new forms of life arise. Neo-Darwinism does a good job of explaining small-scale variation, but not major innovation. So lots of evolutionary biologists have said recently it explains the survival, but not the arrival of the fittest. Mm. It explains how the finch beaks get a little bigger, a little smaller, and vary in response to changing climactic patterns in the Galapagos Islands, for example, or South America. But it doesn't do a good job of explaining where birds and mammals and other major groups of organisms came from in the first place. So that lack of an account of morphological innovation was something that this biologist Gerd Muller listed in his opening talk. And then thirdly, he said neo-Darwinism doesn't do a good job of explaining the origin of phenotypic complexity, the complexity of organisms in their visible body plans and body types with their specialized organs and so forth. So complexity, innovation, abrupt appearance in the fossil record, three big things that the neo-Darwinian mechanism of mutation and selection doesn't explain well. And underlying all of that is the fundamental issue that I address in my book, Darwin's Doubt, which is the origin of the new genetic information that's necessary to account for new forms of life, new fossils in the fossil record, and the complexity of organisms. Just like in your computer, if you want to give your computer a new function, you have to provide it with new code or new software, new information. And in the same way in biology, to build a fundamentally new organ or body plan or form of life, there has to be new information supplied. And the evolutionary process of mutation and selection does not provide a plausible mechanism for doing so. No, that's that's really helpful. And, and as, as people are listening to this right now, it's really important for them to understand that we're not saying hey, there's a big gap in our knowledge. We don't know what's going on here, so we're going to put God or some sort of intelligent designer in there. No, what we're saying is this is not an, evident, an argument from ignorance. It's an argument from evidence. It's, hey, we know where information comes from. We know that this product of a mind, and therefore when we recognize that, then we infer design very rationally and very reasonably. And so it's very important that both sides of that kind of equation people kind of grasp that there's the critique which you've provided so well as well as published on hey not only is that but we see these features of intelligence right and so that's a very important and i think a powerful signpost in the direction of intelligent design right I and mean, what, what i just said in the last answer was mainly a critique of the adequacy of the neo-darwinian mechanism in particular the ability of random mutations and natural selection to generate the new information that you need to build 
new organs and body plans and new forms of life. The problem with the mutation selection mechanism is that it depends on random copying errors or other random changes to the sequence of the the letters or the chemicals that function as letters in the DNA molecule. DNA has a four-character code where the arrangement of the, the chemicals called bases, which are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text, provides information for building the proteins that cells and organisms need to survive. So you've got in the DNA molecule, you have these four chemical letters, four chemicals, they're subunits of the DNA, and they, this is the great insight of Francis Crick, they're functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text, and they provide information for building the proteins and protein machines that keep organisms alive. So the big question is, where does that information come from? The neo-Darwinian answer to that is, well, random changes in, those, in the sequences of the A's, C's, G's, and T's, the genetic letters, those random changes are responsible for the new information that builds new structures. The problem is, based on our knowledge of the computer industry, is that you start randomly changing a functional text, functional section of software, you're going to inevitably degrade that information, not come up with a new operating system or computer program. And there are mathematical reasons for that that I go into in my books. But so the mechanism of mutation and selection is a mechanism that degrades information, not generates new information. And so it can't account for novelty. But we do know, and now we get back to your, your question, which is we do know of a cause, however, that's sufficient to explain the origin of code, the origin of information. That causes intelligence. And we have uniform and repeated experience of intelligent agents generating information in an alphabetic or digital form. And so when we encounter digital information at the foundation of life, we have a knowledge base that justifies an inference to a designing intelligence as the best explanation for the phenomenon that we're observing. So we're not solely inferring design because mutation and selection doesn't provide a good account of where new information comes from. We're inferring intelligent design because we have uniform and repeated experience of intelligent agents generating information. And in fact, we know of only one cause, that cause being, again, intelligence, that's capable of producing information. And therefore, the presence of information at the foundation of life provides a powerful indicator of the prior activity of a designing mind. That's an argument, as you put it nicely, an argument from knowledge, not from ignorance. Yeah, and that's so important because it's both sides. It's critiquing. It's like, here's, you didn't show what you needed to show, but also we recognize a pattern that leads us in a different direction. I think it's really fun to see, especially students begin to see some of those things, because a lot of times, and I'm sure you've encountered this, I think a lot of Christians in churches and schools and just kind of sometimes feel a little intellectually bullied by some of the scientific evidence or people in authority who kind of, hey, this is what you ought to believe, and you're kind of silly or stupid or ignorant if you don't believe this, and then they don't know what to do with that other than, ah, something's off. But until they kind of find out about this whole intelligent design movement and the work that you and your colleagues at the Discovery Institute and others have done on this, doing excellent work, engaging with the science, engaging with the philosophy, and then allowing people to kind of make up their own minds on this and kind of follow the evidence where it leads as opposed to just saying, hey, naturalism must be true. Therefore, Darwinian evolution becomes the only game in town. Absolutely. We had an experience of this kind very recently. I did a conference in Dallas where the lead event, the the kickoff event rather, on Friday night was a Socrates in the City style interview between Eric Metaxas and me. And one of the camera operators for this event, it was filmed in front of a live audience, but it's going to be broadcast later, started weeping in the middle of the interview. And a number of people noticed, and she kind of pulled it together and did a great job and 
you know, finished the interview. And, but afterwards, she shared what was so moving with her boss, who was the producer of the of the film shoot. And apparently, she'd been a biology major in college, had believed in God at some level, and was continually bullied in her biology classes by professors who said things like, hey, we've just presented all the facts here, and they point in the direction of, uh, you know, some evolutionary account of our origins. And so, really, if you want to be a scientist, you, you really need to dispense with any kind of notion of belief in God or some higher power. You've got to believe what we've shown you based on the facts of science. Well, she was reluctant to give up her faith in God, but she also really loved biology and really loved science, so she lived for a number of years with a kind of cognitive dissonance, never really resolved it, sensed intuitively that the, the, the materialistic, undirected account of origins led to a pretty depressing worldview. And so she was in some kind of, a little bit of a uh, significant amount of internal turmoil over this, not really knowing what she believed and not knowing how to reconcile what she thought were the facts of science with her belief intuitive maybe in god and the conference was a conference on science and faith and she said just the title of the conference was really intriguing to her because it wasn't science versus faith it was not science or faith it was science and faith and she apparently was very moved by the discussion that eric and i had about the evidence for the creation of the universe with the, the provided by the big bang theory and she said she had a, a tune running through her mind from the sound of music nothing comes from nothing nothing ever could <laughs> and she realized that the universe had a beginning you can't explain that materialistically it must there must have been some other kind of cause responsible and she realized that fit very nicely with her theistic belief and I really appreciate you sharing that story. That's an amazing testimony to hear that and, and such a good, I hope, affirmation of all the labor and the hard work that you've put in over the years to be able to help her see that and others see that. But I also want to kind of highlight for parents how important it is for your, especially your high school students, as they're getting into biology and chemistry and some of these kind of things like this, there's going to be a natural tendency for them to begin to pull those apart. They're going to put their Christian faith on one side and then science and rationality and knowledge on the other unless you equip them, get them books like this, Theistic Evolution that we're talking about with Stephen Meyer today, maybe send them to some of our experiences at Impact 360 Immersion during the summer, a two-week experience where we talk about this stuff, or nine-month Impact 360 Fellows, or something like that where we can help them bring those worlds back together, because we don't want this to steal the vitality of the Christian life where they go, mm, I just don't know if this is really real, and it's hard to give yourself to something if you don't actually think it's true, right? That word vitality and what you just said is really significant. When I was teaching as a college professor, uh, my first year teaching, I had a big football player who turned out to be one of the brightest students I ever had. He was really, I think, a genius. And he went on to get a PhD in the philosophy of mind and computer science in a joint program at the University of Texas. As a freshman, he burst into my office one day. He came to the college as an agnostic. He was having a lot of conversations with Christian students. He was exploring the God question, but he'd asked them difficult questions about science and faith, about contradictions in the Bible, about whatever it was. And he would invariably get the same answer. I don't know. You just have to have faith. And, you know, he was quite a big guy, and he burst into my office one day, very agitated, reporting on these conversations. And he kind of mimicked the way that his fellow students would answer, you know, in a kind of breathy voice, I don't know, you just have to have faith. And he, he finally, out of just pure exasperation, said, why can't someone give you reasons for faith? And I don't know if it was more out of self-defense, because he was so big and intense, or out of true conviction, but I said, why don't we do a class on that? And 
he, I'll never forget his reaction. He said, he said, you mean you think there are some? And I said, I, I, if, I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't. And he said, I'd be really interested in hearing about that. And he started to calm down. And so I offered the class. And I've probably done it 15 times at different universities. And I used to tell students when I was in that class, I'd say, the heart cannot exult in what the mind rejects. Sooner or later, if you doubt the truth of what you say you believe intellectually, if you doubt it intellectually, pure emotional experience will not carry you through a, an intellectual challenge to the faith. But the good news is there are tremendous reasons for faith. And if we're talking about just the science and the basic theism, which is what I'm working on right now, the case is very, very strong. The, mm. the big discoveries of modern science in theoretical physics and cosmology and astronomy and in biology, molecular biology, especially as, it's, as information sciences have been applied, they, I, I think, have a, a very powerful theistic witness. They point in the direction of the reality, not just of an intelligent designer, but an intelligent designer who transcends matter, space, time, and energy. And so the three big discoveries that I'm focusing on now are the universe had a beginning, it was finely tuned from the beginning, and there's evidence of design in biology. And that evidence of that positive evidence of design then challenges the Darwinian account of things and brings us back to the discussion about theistic evolution. It's an unnecessary accommodation to materialism is where I come down on that in the, at the end of the day. It's, its main attractive feature is that somehow allows you to put theism and science together, but it's on unnecessary terms to materialism and unfavorable terms to theism. A better synthesis is to see that there's positive evidence for the existence and activity of a designing intelligence, a creative intelligence, both in cosmology and in the history of life. So I think theistic evolution is ultimately unnecessary. Well, that's such a good summary, and there's so many things we could talk about. Time flies when you're having fun. But, you know, as I think about this, if I was going to kind of put it in a summary, so basically what you're saying in terms of theistic evolution is if the problem weren't the fact that it was scientifically kind of inadequate or logically contradictory or theologically problematic, then theistic evolution is a great idea, right? Is that basically what you're Exactly right. Yeah, I've actually said that. If it weren't scientifically moribund and philosophically contradictory and, and theologically compromised, it'd be a great thing to adopt. It's problematic on many fronts. And the biggest reason, though, is why say that mutation and selection is the means by which God creates if even the secular evolutionary biologists are recognizing that that mechanism has very little if any, creative power. And the absence of such creative power is leading those same biologists to look for a new theory of evolution. I mean, it's very odd to have Christian people baptizing this theory just as the secular proponents of the theory are saying, hey, it's not working, we need something new. Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this conversation with Dr. Stephen Meyer. The book we've been talking about is Theistic Evolution. If you're not familiar with Dr. Meyer's work, you really owe it to yourself to get copies of his book, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, especially Theistic Evolution. This dives head-on into all the scientific explanations and interaction with all the research and, and the different journals and all the conversation points you need to. Definitely take advantage of that. There'll be links in the show notes to that. I hope that even though this conversation may have been stretching and challenging for you, I hope you walk away encouraged because there are good reasons why we believe what we believe. We don't just kind of hide our heads in the sand and kind of hope and wish that this stuff is true. There's really good reason and evidence for it. So I hope you're encouraged by that. And I hope you can have better conversations with your kids about these questions. Also, another resource is Welcome to College, a book that I wrote that kind of tries to popularize some of these ideas for you as parents and as students to kind of talk about and engage all the challenges that are waiting on the college campus. So 
Hope you'll check those out at impact360.org. Maybe consider some of those experiences during the summer or our fellows program as well. But Dr. Meyer, I just really want to thank you for your time and the passion you have for this topic and all your research and uh, the investment in this important topic. Hey, thank you. And thanks for all you're doing with these bright young people. They're the rising generation of scientists and scholars, and that's the future. So we're excited about what you're doing, too. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.